and good morning, evening, afternoon. Thanks for returning for another episode of Cinema. And uh, today's episode is going to be looking at what I have called film dysmorphia and, and really how we look at movies uh, thanks to the recent technological advents of, of uh, CGI and green screening. And it really has changed the way that we look at things, especially for a generation that has no comparison to what older folks have grown up on. And and again, a lot of this can always sound like ranting in the way of, you know, well, when I was a kid, we we walked uphill both ways in snow on our way to, to school. Uh, that's not what I'm going at here. There, there's been a fundamental change in the way that we look at films. And one of the things that, that made me think of this was, is uh, I saw one of those YouTube videos. Uh, I, I don't know if who does all these. There's so many of them. But there was this one that uh, fancies himself as a YouTube host, and and he stands in front of a green screen with a lot of uh, nice CGI graphics in the background and and other backgrounds and such. And this one was on uh, Star Wars, and and it's more of a pop culture vlog than anything else. And uh, they were talking about, at that time, the Rogue One release, in which, uh, before I go into what this guy said, when I went to see Rogue One, and I I really do try to... uh, seclude myself away from any spoilers. I I imagine going to a movie hoping to actually just be surprised and uh, not know anything about it by just simply going in and and sitting down and being amazed. And that's what I did with Rogue One. And I truly did not know that they were bringing back Peter Cushing. I really, really did not know. I mean, even if they did uh, if even if I did know that, I, I probably would have thought, well, they're they're going to kind of do what they did at the end of uh, Revenge of the Sith, and you're going to see a long shot of uh, some guy in in uh, Peter Cushing prosthetics to to give the impression of a younger Peter Cushing uh, kind of thing, but not really Peter Cushing himself. And it was that scene where the camera pushes up on the actor, and the actor turns around, and there is Peter Cushing's face. And my jaw dropped and it was truly a no shit moment for me. And and I was thrilled. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Now we can get into all the ramifications of of what this technology can do, especially now with uh, the recent uh, chatter of um, deep fake videos. However, at this time and in the context of a Star Wars movie, it was an absolute blow away moment. So going back to this uh, fanboy video blog, uh, this guy, he's, he's you know, going in. He's, the way that he talks, it's all like real quick. Because everybody apparently has ADHD and, and nobody can concentrate on, on actual dialogue. So really, I should be doing my podcast like this. And we should have some zany sound effects and talking like this all the time in quick cuts or as I call it, voice McNuggets. That's what we should be feeding everybody, right? I should do my entire podcast talking this way. Hey! So this guy goes on and and talks about the Peter Cushing uh, surprise in Rogue One. And he's praising it and he's saying, oh, this is great and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, wow, okay. And all of a sudden he just turns because see, that's what we have to do on the internet. We have to hate. And he starts talking about all the imperfections of the close-ups of Peter Cushing's face and you could tell that the mouth really didn't move well and all this. And I'm sitting here going, you've got to be fucking kidding me. These people have just created something that 30 years ago we would have marveled at and and we're just taking it for granted. We just go, well, they did it with a computer and, and now we know because I know everything on how they make movies. We don't take into consideration all the damned work that went into this 
just to bring Peter Cushing back. This is an extremely bold move in a motion picture because if it fails, the whole thing takes you out of the movie and Gareth Edwards has nothing but a donkey and pony show is really all he has. And instead, they did something really, really cool. I really do feel that we've been reduced to picking that shit out of Pepper. We we are looking for imperfections and problems with everything we watch because we want everything to be real. That's what CGI was supposed to do, right? It was supposed to make everything look more real. The, the realism factor. Everything was supposed to be more real. And really what we have now are movies that are pretty much gigantic cartoons. I mean, The Irishman is about to be released and they've de-aged uh, Robert De Niro and a couple of the other actors. And some of the early reviews coming out are saying that it looks almost cartoonish, that it really doesn't belong that way. I mean, would Scorsese have been better off just casting younger actors uh, to, to play these roles? I, I, I don't know. But it, it kind of re- works in reverse when you have bad makeup, such as Prometheus, where uh, the old age makeup was was a real distraction. It took me out of the movie. It was like, couldn't you have just found an 80-year-old guy or a 90-year-old guy to play this part? Or at least somebody older to the mark and just touch it up like Dick Smith used to do to really put on a realistic aging factor? And again, it's that quest for realism. And, and speaking of Martin Scorsese, he said about a year or so ago, he said that cinema is dead. He said there's just simply too much content and nothing is special anymore. And and I really, in some ways, really agree with him that we sit there and we we just take all these amazing special effects and everything for granted and, and all we do is poke holes in everything. Have we become so cynical that, that we can no longer appreciate the craft of filmmaking? Is, is that what it's come to? I mean, is there really so much content that it just all means nothing, that, that we're just blocking it out like visual and audio noise? I mean, I, I again, I like I said before, I, I know I sound like the old man who wants the kids off his lawn, but when did we lose the ability to fucking enjoy something, man? So much attention is is paid on the smallest of details, and and as a result, it, it often seems to come from those who could never come close to achieving anything what these special effects people are are doing and and what they're criticizing. I mean, you have all these, well, I, I know how they did that, and, you know, the, the lips don't move, or, or you know, the, the special effects, you know, the green screening, and blah. it's like, yeah, I get all of that, but let's see you do better. When someone criticizes one of my movies, and, and sometimes it's well-founded, we've discussed that in previous episodes, my, my response is always, I look forward to seeing your movie. And one time someone actually said, well, oh, I don't make movies, and there's your answer. Of course you don't. That's why I said it. Because you know everything, right? Everyone's an armchair critic. And most of all now, these kind of special effects, which just saturate everything that we do, are really changing the way that we see motion pictures and how we process them. It really is a visual dysmorphia. Look, ships don't explode in space. And diving tanks don't explode and blow up sharks. Cars don't maneuver like they do in Fast and the Furious, and Bruce Willis would have died from just one of the many hits, smashes, and throws he got in the original Die Hard. We go to the movies to suspend our disbelief. So what is that quest for realism? Back in the 80s, uh, an American film company actually approached Toho and said, listen, we we want to come on board, and and we'll even do a co-production with you, but we want to make a Godzilla movie where it actually puts an emphasis on realism. And some of the Japanese producers, and I don't know if this was was Tanaka or not, 
But they replied back, why would we do that? We, we have a visual style here. This is what the movies are. And while you Americans tear them down and think they all look fake, this is the style that the Japanese people appreciate. So we're really not looking for realism. So thanks for the offer, but we're politely not interested. So what are we looking for when we say, that didn't look real? I mean, what exactly does that mean anymore? Those who, again, like going back to Godzilla, understand kaiju films know that realism wasn't the goal of the filmmakers. And the giant monster films of the 1960s had that aesthetic that I was talking about that Japanese filmmakers were going for. So let's look at, for example, Godzilla 1954 and Godzilla 1998. Now, two very different films, and really one of them isn't Godzilla. Take a pick which one isn't. However, the suitmation of the original 1954 Godzilla with a guy in a suit stepping on model buildings on a giant soundstage with a fake backdrop and artificial lighting, everybody makes fun of that now. Well, not everybody, but a lot, and younger generations do. They look at it and they go, I can't believe people watch this. That's because you're taking the entire movie out of context. You're stripping it also of its narrative and what it was trying to say. You are simply judging the film upon its special effects alone. And, and that is a problem because CGI and green screening has done this. So if you don't believe me on that, let's move over to Godzilla 1998, which was all green screen and all CGI. And you mean to tell me that that looks any more real? It looks like a giant cartoon. The buildings fall and dust comes out and they, they don't break apart like model buildings. But really, is it any different? We know how it's done. Instead of saying, well, those were model buildings and they're breaking up. Well, now it's just, well, they just made a computer program and it mimics the physics of a collapsing building. That's how they do it. So what's the difference? Is the CGI work in the 2014 Godzilla, Gareth Edwards Godzilla, that different than the stylized suits and sound stages of, of the original films? And the answer in some respects is yes. I mean, Godzilla looks entirely different. They, they did him very differently in the 2014 one. And I'm a fan of the 2014 one. I, I enjoyed it. But we know what we are seeing in those movies was created by a computer. And our eyes know how the programs simulate muscle action and body movement through the motion capture. And in fact, we celebrate that with, you know, all these actors that now get big praise and credit because they're motion capture artists and their facial expressions. Even Ghidorah in Godzilla King of the Monsters got a special shout out in promos just for the motion capture because each head had its own personality from an actor doing that. I mean, that's pretty cool, but really in the end, is that really necessary? I, I mean, maybe, I guess, but you just couldn't do that. I mean, how much facial expression can King Ghidorah have? How is CGI really any different than spotting the zipper up the back of a monster costume? I mean, in, in the new Godzilla movie and in the 1998 or even Jurassic Park, they had rain coming down. And the reason why was to mask any defects in the CGI. Well, as you people probably saw in the, in the new Godzilla film, the, the 2019 King of the Monsters, it's all dark and we have snow or we have rain or we shoot the action through windows or have some type of object coming down and in front of us just in time to get that scene moving. So we know enough now to go, well, they, they made it all take place at night because it processed quicker. They can get the movie out faster. Rendering times are different, blah, blah, blah. Whatever you want to say about how much you know. The point is, is that there were probably some cynical shortcuts made there just to get this film out on time. 
So how is that like going, well, it's raining. They're, they're masking the problems with the CGI. Any different than going, oh, look, that's where the zipper goes up Godzilla's back. There is no difference. A defect is a defect. And if you spot it, you spot it. So what I'm doing is I'm proposing a new disorder, and that is film dysmorphia. We have become conditioned to CGI and that we believe this is the new normal. And our minds tell us that it doesn't quite look right yet. And often we reject it outright in big budget spectacles like Star Wars or disaster garbage like 2012. And, and it's, a, it's like really a detailed cartoon and it's mostly lacking in style. But we have come to believe this is what looks good. And if it isn't CGI, well, then it sucks. And if you remember the original James Bond movies going all the way back to Sean Connery, I mean, those films had some healthy budgets, but however, many of the driving and road scenes were were done with a rear projection technique because it was a stylized choice by the director. They had the money to put a camera on a car and go out and film the car on the road. And I say this because... I got attacked for this in my action comedy, Garlic and Gunpowder, where somebody wrote in a review, well, you know, they, instead of driving, this movie is so low budget, instead of driving on a real road and filming that, they went out and, and filmed a green screen projection where the actors are sitting in the car and the background is projected behind them. Yeah, dumbass, that was a choice I did because Garlic and Gunpowder is very much in the vein of it's a mad, 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 mad world, which if you look at many of the car chases in that with Dick Sean driving high speed down a road and the close-ups of them, and when they have that that car uh, rodeo or, or duel on the road with Jonathan Winter's pickup truck and all of that stuff, the tow truck, I mean, it's very clear they're in front of a projection screen and they the, the cars are on some type of movable rockers coming in and back and forth to each other. Uh, that was a stylized choice. You think Stanley Kramer was so inept that he went, oh, we're going to do this and actually try to pass this off as real. It's an artistic stylized choice, folks. And that's what I chose with garlic and gunpowder. I'm not complaining. Uh, What I'm saying is there are people out there reviewing movies that just don't get it. It would have been cheaper and easier to get simply get a camera mount and stick it on the front of those cars and shoot those scenes. Instead, we had to shoot them. I had to put the thing through post. It had to go through rotoscoping and everything else. It's a pain in the ass to do green screen. Yes, it was a stylized choice. I mean, tell me that the back green screen work in Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls is any better than the rear projection Bond car work from the original James Bond movies. Really? You remember that scene where Karen Allen is driving the car and and they're fighting on the back, the sword fight and all that stuff? You, You didn't really realize or you really think that that looks real, that that isn't green screening? It is clear this is on a stagnant soundstage with that Indiana Jones movie and in front of a green screen. None of this has any of the impact of the first film's incredible live-action stunt work. Let me tell you, man, if you think that I'm wrong, you go back and look at that scene in the original Raiders of the Lost Ark when Harrison Ford gets thrown out that truck and goes underneath the vehicle. I remember sitting in the theater just constantly going, how do they do that? Oh my God, is that really Harrison Ford? It looks like it is and turns out it was. Real stunt work, real danger. We know that while filming that, there was real danger going on. Well, now we don't have any of that. You sit in the theater and you go, eh, it's in front of a green screen. That's CGI. We know how they did it. And, and who are these people that call films and their special effects, quote unquote, dated? If they're so dated, 
Why are they remade into inferior and more expensive films? The original 1984 A Nightmare on Elm Street had a small budget with limited effects, and that's what made Wes Craven shine. That scene where Amanda Wiss is slaughtered in the bedroom with the rolling uh, set and all of that stuff, that is incredible. That is not CGI. This is long before CGI. That was a set on a rolling set of rockers with a camera that could turn. It was amazing. And you know what? I don't even want to know fully how they did it. And to this day, I mean, I know Amanda Wiss. She and I are friends. And I have never once in a dinner meeting with her or sitting down socially with her said, come on, Amanda, tell me how they killed you in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Because I don't fucking want to know. I love the magic of it. I don't want to sit there and sound like the most smartest man in the room when we watch the scene with a group of people and go, well, you know, I know Amanda West and she told me how it's done, how Wes Craven did it. You sound like a doofus when you talk like that. And that's another thing that we could get into eventually is just people who are just so socially inept that they think talking like this sounds great. You know what you are? You're kind of a cinematic Debbie Downer. So yeah, they they turned around and in 2010, they remade A Nightmare on Elm Street into this much bigger budgeted production and it fell flat. It was shunned by fans and it couldn't find a new audience that the studio hoped for. And, And that just means, look, CGI and green screening doesn't mean that the movie is better. Wes Craven wrote a smart, scary screenplay that relied on story, it relied on mood, and it relied on suspense. The remake had excellent CGI effects, but really little else. It was lifted from Craven's original hard work. Like Psycho, aside from a few tweaks, A Nightmare on Elm Street was a shot-for-shot remake. It was devoid of the issues of the original's time and was made as a cynical cash-in and nothing more. The original is called Dated because it was made in 1984. So why did the update fail then? So just fix it, right? Update it and that should take care of the problem? No, because you're taking a movie, its plot and its time totally out of historical context. And we've talked in previous episodes, what can be done to make Freddy or Jason relevant? The times have changed, but Freddy and Jason have not. And that's a problem. Something happened in the last 20 years or so to movie audiences. They want the flash of fancy effects and and they demand quality, but have they lost the ability to appreciate a good film because of some film dysmorphia? And they have this perfectionist need for realism. And and if you don't believe me, look at my analysis of Independence Day 2 uh, on my cinema blog. And, And as you go back and listen to my Fright Night remake podcast. Look at the stills. Go back. Just simply, if you don't believe me, you don't have the time. And I don't recommend watching Independence Day 2 because it's it's not really a movie. It's just simply a very Jaws the Revenge kind of thing like product. So go look at a couple stills from Independence Day 2. Uh, look, at, look at stills from that and compare them to Godzilla 1954. Two movies that are over 50 years apart. Like find, find the one still I think it's of, uh, it might be San Francisco or, or some major U.S. city. It's always a landmark city uh, that's, that's being destroyed by the aliens in Independence 2. Does, does the destruction of the Japanese diet building in the 1954, if you can find that footage or that photo from the original Godzilla, does that look any less real than the animated CGI destruction of New York City in Independence Day 2? 
I mean, Roland Emmerich says, well, we had to wait 20 years for, for the special effects to be just right to make a sequel to Independence Day 2. I call bullshit. You mean we sat around for 20 years waiting for the Independence Day 2 effects and all they basically are are just more green screen and CGI? Tell me one thing in Independence Day 2 that we had to sit around and wait 20 years for to be developed. I, look, I'm not a huge fan of the original Independence Day, but at least it was it was good matinee popcorn fun. There is nothing fun about Independence Day 2. So while Godzilla has been remade a number of times with almost 30 sequels since 1954, I'm going to bet that Independence Day 2 will never be up for a remake, let alone a third installment. Fake is fake, no matter how many dollars are behind it. However, one of these films had a damn fine script and story. Can you guess between which one, Godzilla 1954 or Independence Day 2? Which one had the better script? I'll even go further. Which one just had a plain fucking script? Let's look at John Carpenter as an example. I mean, Carpenter shot his classic Escape from New York on less than $2 million. He used East St. Louis to substitute for the once great city of New York. Do you remember that line in the opening of the film, the once great city of New York? He utilized hand-painted mats for the city skyline and cleverly utilized vector graphics for aerial shots of the city from Kurt Russell's glider. I mean, if you look at the scene where the helicopters come flying in toward the end of the film uh, over New York City, that background where the people are in the front cheering as the helicopters are coming in, that background was hand-painted. And guess who it was hand-painted by? James Cameron, of all people. Is this perfect realism? It doesn't matter. Escape from New York was a damn good story with iconic characters and star turns by Kurt Russell, Isaac Hayes, Harry Dean Stanton, and Adrian Barbeau. It was a fresh post-apocalyptic romp that would likely not even make a sci-fi channel premiere today. I can hear the online trailer reviewers, those guys, and, and other web-based hosts tearing into the trailer, knocking the mad effects and, and the cheap look of the film James Cameron hand-painted the skyline and old-school matted it right into the frame. The amount of work that went into this film is staggering, and it cost a fraction of what CGI costs, and still, I say this yields an equal, if not better, greater effect than present computer technology. You know that famous still of The Walking Dead where we have, uh, what's-his-face, Rick Grimes on horseback walking toward Atlanta, and the Atlanta cityscape is in the background, the skyline's in the background, and he's on this empty highway on one side, and then across the median, it's jam-packed with cars with people who were trying to flee the city from the other. That episode alone, that that still is taken from, had a budget greater than Escape from New York and with state-of-the-art technology. Tell me that that still looks any better than the hand-painted mat job in Carpenter's Escape from New York. Yet modern fans will claim it does. No, it doesn't. Your view is distorted. This is where film dysmorphia comes in. The buildings in that Walking Dead still are clearly digital mats, as well as the shoddy traffic jam coming out of Atlanta. Where are the critics, the YouTube nitpickers, talking about this? It's clearly CGI. It's clearly a digital mat. It's clearly Photoshop. And yet, people think that's great. Let's come around to Jaws. The shark looks fake. There was talk of updating the film, and there, there's constantly talk of updating the film uh, and that and remaking it. But the one update was about erasing Bruce the mechanical shark and replacing him with a CGI shark that would look more realistic. And if you look online, you can find 
uh, where they did this actually with Jaws the Revenge. They CGI'd in a a realistic looking shark from the fake one. And I'm going to tell you, it doesn't make it any better. It's still a shitty movie. And in fact, as I've said, Jaws the Revenge is not a movie. It is just cynical product. So go ahead, Photoshop in, digitalize in a realistic looking shark. It doesn't make that piece of shit any better. However, mess with Jaws and you are now messing with art. Look, Spielberg erased the guns from E.T. If you remember that just before the kids lift off and the bikes and the FBI agents are on the road and he replaced them with walkie talkies. Jaws, like E.T., had a fantastic story and screenplay. Jaws has terrific characters and performances and topped off with, at that time, groundbreaking special effects. That's why Jaws is a classic. As Spielberg would go on to do with Jurassic Park, Spielberg at that time invented the technology for his monster. Bob Matty and Roy Arbogast did what couldn't be done and consequently made film history. I mean, if you watch people already, you know, I've watched everything on Jaws, on the making of Jaws. Well, then you know that they actually went to Disney and they thought they could animate a shark and make an animated shark that Disney could do something realistic. And they some there was some thought for a moment there, a hot second, I guess, of actually trying to ch- uh, train a great white shark to, to do the work. And none of that was going to go. So they built this shark and it had never been done before. And that's the genius of Spielberg for saying, look, we've hit a roadblock. Find me a way around it, over it, or under it. Maddie's robot shark was robbed of the Oscar for best visual effects to the Hindenburg, which I don't know why the Hindenburg got it. Yes, they were great effects, but that had already been done before. Jaws created a whole new technology for a film and absolutely deserved the Oscar for best special effects that year. The ending of the book to Jaws is very different than the film and and Spielberg wanted to go out with a big bang ending. And when someone pointed out the impossibility of an air tank exploding in the shark's mouth, Spielberg replied, if I have them, meaning the audience, this long, well then they'll buy anything. It's called suspension of disbelief, folks. This is something an audience affords a film when they are engrossed and invested into the film. Spielberg was right because that smile, you son of a bitch, ending made history. Bruce the Mechanical Shark is a piece of art. It was created and utilized in film as an integral part of the storyline. To erase it and replace it with a digital equivalent is censorship, in my opinion. To call the shark dated is to apply the same thinking to the Mona Lisa, the Statue of Liberty, or anything by Andy Warhol. So if you're gonna bitch, then you better be consistent. And for all of you gnat shit pickers out there, I officially declare the following films as they suck, and here is why. Are you ready? So if we're gonna say that Jaws sucks because the effects are dated, well, you know what? Gremlins and Critters suck as well. And why? Because it's clear the gremlins are puppets and animatronics. They even use stop motion to show the groups of them in a street scene in Gremlins. And the ending street shot is one big matte painting and doesn't look real. The department store is a set and the snow all looks like fake snow. Dated. So let's declare Ghostbusters 1984 dated. It's very clear Slimer is nothing more than a superimposed puppet. The Stay Puff Marshmallow Man is just a guy in a big suit walking around on a big set filled with moving models. The laser beams coming from the proton packs are clearly animated, and the ending fight is on a stage. 
I can often see the mat seams and the Ghostbusters themselves projected in front of a screen. So you know what? Dated. But let's go into horror a little bit. Friday the 13th. The whole franchise, except we'll leave the remake out of this. It's so obvious these are cheap old school effects. Jason sometimes looks like a puppet, and it's clear that this is just a big guy in latex. I mean, we all know now that most of the time it was Kane Hodder, and well, I worked with Kane Hodder, and I know Kane, so uh, this this just doesn't pass anymore for me. I mean, in part four, it's a dummy head slid down a machete, and the blood looks fake, and Tom Savini and all those makeup artists, well, they're just hacks. Dated. Let's go even further. Let's take on the original Star Wars trilogy. You know, that beloved trilogy that nobody can come close to. Well, I'm sorry. The ships are models and you can see they're matted in, especially on on some copies on home video. You can actually see the matte lines. And many of the creatures, including Yoda and Jabba the Hutt, look like, well, what they are. They're Muppets. And much of Hoth, the location, it looks like a soundstage. And and the AT-AT walkers, well... They're, they're stop-motion animation models, and, and the entire Bespin planet looks like one gigantic Albert Whitlock matte painting and, and cheap. You can see the post Luke slams into at the end of Return of the Jedi wobble, and clearly cheap effects and stage design are all utilized. So, dated. Now let's go back all the way to the granddaddy of them all. Let's go to King Kong, 1933. And Kong is clearly stop-motion animation, and, and Fay Ray is held in a giant mechanical ape-hand prop. The island is just a giant stage set and they use rear projection on, on just about everything. And, and you can see Kong's fur ruffle here and there from where they moved him with wires and, and pins. And, and the dinosaurs look fake. The Empire State Building falls just some monkey doll thrown down the side. So, dated. Hopefully at this point in the podcast you realize I'm, I'm totally fucking with you. But do you get my point? Anyone took those examples seriously, then you're not seeing things properly. Did we look at these films and so many more with such eagle-eyed criticism, or do we remember them fondly for the fantastic stories or thrills that they gave us? All of these films, and more, open the way for the movies that thrill us today. When some man-child YouTube star or YouTuber or wannabe tells us that the hard work and artistry put into films can be dismissed as imperfect, like that guy did with Peter Cushing at the start of this podcast with Rogue One, Well, then we have an issue. All of these films worked with what they had, but they all worked with great minds who used imagination, art, and style to tell their tales. The word dated is a term of ignorance. The opening video that I talked about with that guy blathering uh, is just digital noise in an age that makes its judgments toward the vapid, shallow importance of quote-unquote expense. Enjoy a film for what it is. All of the smarmy, fast-talking, hip critics, and I use that term loosely, who have never made a single thing should take a lesson on appreciating a film instead of just reviewing it and looking for every imperfection so they can create some lame, look how cool I am video or blog. Appreciate the work that went into bringing the story to you instead of reviewing trailers and trying to draw conclusions on on 30 to 60 seconds of footage. It's just stupid. And I'm going to say it again. Trailer reviews are fucking stupid. For the record, I can see the makeup lines on Kim Kardashian, the plastic surgery effects on Kylie Jenner, and the stupidity of celebrity idolatry. 
I can see a lot of fake stuff that is out there. And yet, I still go through life and I try to enjoy it. And most of all, I try to appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a great day. And hope you'll tune in to my next episode where I feature continuing kind of the critical thread, uh, Dread Central's Michelle Swope, who will be joining us and uh, have some great questions for her. And most of all, we actually entered into an impromptu therapy session. So stay tuned for that, which will be dropping in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Cinema. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review. And if you want to read my cinema blog, you'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison.